We've begun examining the weapon. Excellent work. I'll see that you receive a commendation. With respect, General, I prefer you didn't. Transmit your analysis as soon as possible. Commander Shran. What is it? Enterprise is approaching. Where are they? 80,000 kilometers. They're hailing us. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between the Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton. Ready to get his Ferengi on. <laughs> and this week, we are declaring, give these aliens a spinoff. Yeah, Kim, I think we want to touch on the idea that, look, uh, Star Trek has always been centered around Starfleet and the Federation. I, I think, you know, maybe Picard tried to do something a little different, but it wasn't really that enjoyable to watch. Uh, but I How think... dare you? How <laughs> dare sorry. you say that about Narek and Rizzo, the most compelling <laughs> characters on TV in that season of television. Well, you're also forgetting one Commodore O as well. Um, mm, indeed. But, uh, Cam, I, I think we realize that there might be aliens with some untapped spin-off potential. We're going to go through some and, and really kind of talk through some of our ideas, whether they would work or not, uh, what's missing. Because I think in some cases it's like, okay, we'd like these aliens in small doses. Could they really sustain their own spin-off series? CBS is handing them out like sugar cubes to horses at this point. I, I, maybe it's possible. But um, before we get there, there's a little bit of uh, Star Trek news out in the past uh, few days that I think we want to touch on. First up, uh, we have confirmation that uh, we'll get some new 4K transfers for uh, a number of the Star Trek films. They're, they're going to be released in kind of various sort of packages. But one thing I think pops out to us, Cam, is that the motion picture, the director's cut, will finally, finally, finally be getting an HD 4K in this case transfer how excited are you for that ultra excited because i own the basic dvd version of the director's cut and whenever i want to watch the motion picture i want to watch the director's cut because i think it just fleshes out all of the themes much better it gives spock way more to do and it's like i don't have a great version of that of that film so i can only really rely on watching the blu-ray because i don't really want to go back and watch the really Let's be honest, that DB does not look great on my 4K TV, so I'm stuck with the Blu-ray, which, hey, I love the theatrical motion picture, but give me that director's cut, damn it. I can't wait to be able to count the hairs on McCoy's chest when he beams in in his disco suit for the first time. Yeah, and so this is going to be a uh, Paramount Plus exclusive initially on the window, and I believe there was confirmation there will be a physical media at some point down the road. I'm wondering how in Canada we'll see it. Do you think it'll be on Paramount Plus here? No, absolutely not, because Paramount Plus here sucks. I, I, I mean that very <laughs> sincerely. Like, it, it's terrible. Uh, for instance, uh, Quiet Place 2 is very available to American audiences on Paramount Plus. Cam, I don't believe, and I just checked maybe a week ago, Canada has a single movie 
from the Paramount Library on Paramount Plus up here. It's just like episodes of like NCIS and Survivor and Star Trek and 60 Minutes. Like that's it. Um, unfortunately, it's so dirt cheap that I can't be bothered to like cancel my subscription because I watch Survivor often enough that it's just cheaper for me to keep subscribing rather than investing in kind of the uh, the DVDs or whatever. So. I'll hang on to it for now, but they really do need to up their game. They do, and I'm sure as we get closer to a release for the motion picture director's cut, we'll hear more about international territories and how that's going to be released, but I am just super excited. And have you ever watched the director's cut? Never. Never Ooh. at all. So I'm, uh, I think you and I will have to touch on this uh, once it's available to us. I, I really am intrigued by it, especially when we know this is a movie that will absolutely look gorgeous, uh, directed by Robert Wise. That 4K transfer is something I can't wait for. Yeah, uh, it's a beautiful looking film, and this is going to be the best version out there. And just, I mean, you and I saw it on the big screen not so long ago, really. And, I mean, can you just imagine those visuals in 4K? Like, my God. Uh, Cam, a- anything pre-pandemic might as well have been a decade ago, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but um, other uh, true. big news, true. <laughs> other big news uh, out this week, though, is uh, we have another kind of team of writers and a director lined up for the next Star Trek film. Uh, Matt Shackman has been tapped to direct it. Uh, Lindsay Beer and Geneva Robertson. Dore, I believe is how her last name is pronounced. Um, They have been tapped to pen this. It's set to start filming in the spring uh, of next year. Um, I know Matt Shackman from his directing on on, uh, shows like Mad Men, uh, Game of Thrones, most recently WandaVision. Uh, I'm not ultra familiar with uh, the two writers other than Geneva Robertson Doré. Uh, she was one of the writers on Captain Marvel, which you and I weren't really fans of, but I think there were like four credited writers on that movie. And um, I don't know. I, I, I can't lay it all on one credited writer for why that movie did not work. Um, Lindsay Beer, though, she was one of the people that was uh, asked to come into kind of this Star Trek writer's room to... Um, kind of spitball ideas with regards to that Quentin Tarantino pitch. She was ultimately not among those that, uh, or there's only one writer, a screenwriter selected to uh, do the actual screenplay based on a Quentin Tarantino story. But I guess they liked her enough that they uh, kept around and uh, she and her writing partner went ahead and did this script. And I I don't have too many thoughts on the folks that are behind this. It's kind of a blank slate for me um a blank canvas i i'm I, I just hope we get something you know as they i think the goal cam is june 2023 is when the film will be out so we'll have to see what, what are your thoughts on this i wish i had some sort of like opinion on it it's just like such a uninteresting announcement for me like i wasn't a fan of wandavision really at all and that's what i pretty much know the director from i didn't watch mad men um or game of thrones so it's like okay sure i mean this could be a case where when i you know when i back in what 2006 or whatever year it was i went to see mission impossible uh three i had never watched really anything jj abrams had done and i walked out of that movie being like wow that guy can really direct a you know big budget action movie and i was really excited to see him jump over and do star trek I kind of hope that's the case here where I go into this Star Trek movie and I'm blown away by the the uh, directorial style. It's just like 
I never really know how much faith to put into TV directors jumping over to films because, you know, Tyler, you, um, you know, you're a big Sopranos fan and several other uh, shows that used Alan Taylor. And like Alan Taylor did not translate to big budget filmmaking. So it's always just a big question mark. Um, I, I, I think that's kind of like a, a 1990s perspective on cinema versus TV. Um, if you look at how cinema works now, there's only two kinds of movies that are made. The ones that cost $250 million and the ones that cost about like 5 to $15 million. So that doesn't mean that there are fewer directors out there. They're, they're actually more than ever. And what they're doing is they are working in television, which ha- is just an entirely different medium right now than it was the, when you started getting into cinema back in you know the 90s. And you know when there was that divide between uh, television and, and cinema directing, where you know TV directing meant you were directing episodes of you know NCIS or CSI, that sort of stuff. Um, whereas really kind of the uh, showrunner that was calling all the shots visually and everything looked very samey and bland. But I, I look at, you know, Mayor of Easttown, for example, the HBO limited series that just wrapped up. Every single episode was directed far better than um, a, a lot of the blockbusters that uh, I, I've seen recently. So I, I, I'm not going to prejudge a person based on his tv pedigree especially when from what i've seen he is a good television director um and he's done big budget stuff uh before as well so um it's just um he he, noah holly like he was a television director but his visual style uh he was a visual storyteller that intrigued me much more than say matt shackman so i don't know what to make of this and the only thing that that uh, maybe makes me somewhat concerned is Noah Hawley was about as close as you could get to, you know, starting production uh, on his film as you could before Paramount ultimately just pulled the plug on what was rumored to be kind of a a pandemic-themed sort of film, you know? Um, I can understand why they didn't want to go forward with that. Um, Hopefully, like, some news, you know, kind of about you know, the idea behind this movie uh, leaks out. And there are there is talk that it will be a continuation of the Kelvinverse crew, but nothing confirmed as, as far as I know uh, when we record today. Yeah, and I mean, remember also the S.J. Clarkson film that was also fairly close, it seemed, at points to shooting as well. So fingers crossed we just get something. That's all I want. Just give me a new Star Trek movie. However it turns out, whatever. We'll talk about that later down the road. It just feels at this point weird in a world of franchises many of them we're not asking for that we are bombarded with that one of the big prominent ones like star trek is just kind of sitting on the sidelines i I am absolutely baffled by the cbs viacom merger because the reason you have these mergers is so you're better capitalized and that you're pumping out more ip intellectual property that that's what happens with every single one of these other uh, mergers is they just kept cranking out more and more the fact that they didn't do that with star trek i i don't understand because they've had so much material to work from there's the sj clarkson script the Tarantino script uh there's that clinda vasquez script um it, it seemed as if uh, simon penn and doug jung were writing a script but they now deny it even though they're strongly hinting at i i think there I, I might be missing another script or two that that's already sitting on the shelf like can they all be that terrible? Like, or is it just kind of like this, um, 
turnover within like the executive ranks that nobody wants to pursue whatever their predecessor had going on. Uh, and they, they just kind of cancel, keep canceling all these uh, Paramount uh, projects. Like it's just, it's weird. And it, it just shows like what, what a mess Paramount is in terms of how that studio has been run. Like, like it has a bad reputation for, for uh, just how things work over there. Oh yeah, it really does. And I just, wonder also if it's like some sort of creative paralysis where the way they want to make these Star Trek movies, at least going off the last three they've made, is quite expensive. And it's almost like they're looking at the returns on beyond. And it's like, we've got to hit a home run, guys. We've got to hit a home run. And it's like they're talking themselves out of each version. <laughs> well, that that's okay. That, that goes back to what I was saying before, that there's only two kinds of movies made now. The ones with like, you know, the $250 million budgets or the ones with, you know, the, the $10 million budgets. And, and Star Trek, you know, for the longest time, um, I, I don't know what the inflation would be nowadays, but those were like, you know, 20 to $30 million movies back in the day. So I'm guessing they would be probably around the uh, 70 to $90 million budget range. Those movies don't exist anymore. You know, there's no movies in that budget range that are ever made. Um, maybe on for streaming services. And I honestly think that maybe that's where Star Trek's, you know, cinematic future should be is on Paramount Plus, not out in the movie theaters. And look, you, you cut those budgets down to like, I don't know, 50, 60 million dollars. Um, you're driving subscribers uh, towards your platform. I, I think ultimately, you know, if you amortize it over enough number of years, You'll do okay with that. Now, okay, here's a hypothetical. Let's say the next Star Trek comes out, performs exactly like Star Trek Beyond does. Are we then looking, do you think, in a future where Star Trek movies are streaming events versus theatrical? Yeah, I think that that's just where things are going anyways, um, mm. especially amid the pandemic. Um, it would be a bummer if it means you and I can't look forward to going to the theaters to see Star Trek films anymore, but I think eventually they gotta know that it's such a recognizable IP that it's just so much easier to market stuff that's recognizable that maybe they'll pull something through, maybe kind of um, revamp things in maybe eight or nine years down the road. But Cam, it's been five years since the last Star Trek movie. Um, So that means what, like at minimum, a seven year gap between Star Trek films? (laughs) It is a really baffling um, approach to revitalizing a franchise with this Kelvin verse. It really is crazy. <laughs> it's like, um, think about it this way. In the time that it took to go from Star Trek 2009 to whatever the 2023 film is going to be, that's almost the exact same amount of time as it took to go from the motion picture to Star Trek Generations, where they're passing on the baton to Picard and company. Yeah. It's crazy. And I mean, what, Michael Bay for Paramount made, I think, what, five Transformers films in, what, 10 years? So, and did they ever yeah. care about the scripts there? No, <laughs> of course not. <laughs> that's scripts. What are you talking about? They didn't have scripts. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Alex Kurtzman, they never had scripts. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> and Orsi. Don't forget Orsi. <laughs> Yeah. Well, okay. I'll, I'll I'll throw one other thing at you. Like eventually, that that Orsi script that that was going to be for Star Trek Three. 
Um, it is a weird sort of case where was, clearly he was trying to negotiate himself into the director role. He got himself negotiated right out of that movie for the screenwriting credits. And, uh, but we did get details uh, about that movie. Um, it was eventually going to, is something to do with like Vulcans traveling back through time to prevent the destruction of their home planets. Um, the kind of a MacGuffin, blah, blah, blah. But here's how we know that that movie is dead is that all the details about it leaked out. The fact that we don't really know that much about all the other movies, um, that tells me like some of them might still be in play to a certain degrees, especially the Tarantino one. You know, I, I just think that the Tarantino one is really something that should be for the streaming services rather than theatrical, just based on like what the budget and return is likely going to be for an R-rated Star Trek film. Um, the only problem is, is if it's on Paramount Plus, I, I don't think you can call it like an R-rated film, right? No, no, you can't. Um, it can be a TVMA film. <laughs> maybe they'll make the um, streaming networks, or maybe they'll make great IDW comic book adaptations one day. <laughs> I, I'll, you know what? I would read the Quentin Tarantino IDW comic adaptation of whatever that script was. As would I, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Already, Cam. Um, why don't we get into today's topic? Um, I think this will be a fun one. I'm intrigued. Um, there's some uh, obvious sorts of aliens I, I think we can touch on. might be fun to blast through a couple that are a little weird, but do you want to kick it off with um, maybe an alien pitch here? And we, we can kind of go back and forth. And maybe at the end of this, you and I can kind of um, champion, cheerlead, whatever we think our, our favorite uh, pitches are uh, that uh, we came up with. Okay. Well, I'm going to come out of the gate strong then, I think. This is my... <laughs> This is my salt vampire spinoff story. No, I'm oh. kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's one. A concept for a show, I think. And it's a species that I think we're going to see more of in Star Trek going forward. I think it's one people are excited about. What if we did a series, say like five seasons, of the life of a symbiont with the Trill? And we could follow each season a different lifespan of you know the trill hosts and we could gather them all together for the final like season where it's all like looking back at where we've been how we got to the end and a real look at what existence is how the evolution of a species works i think this could be really cool i think star trek needs to do an anthology series you know and i think this would be kind of a, a perfect sort of format to pursue that and also it doesn't mean that everybody has to be in starfleet all the time like uh, a lot of them were scientists um gymnasts in the case of, of I, I believe is emini dax for example uh pilots i i think that this would be like a real fun idea because you're gonna have kind of this continuity within the character but you're gonna have different actors uh with a different spin on things and maybe it all culminates in kind of remember the episode of deep space nine facets in which uh jadzia was able to kind of experience uh her other hosts uh via everybody else on the crew maybe, maybe that could be kind of like uh every season finale or something like that i don't know yeah or even just the culmination of the series where you have whatever the the final character who's playing uh, the the trill that's hosting the symbiont has that moment where you get to reflect on all the characters that have come before i think this could be really cool it would also be a wicked actors challenge because you'd be bringing in an interesting talent and if this show caught on with viewers they'd be excited to see who was going to be cast as the host each season and then you could have you know the moment where the actor is coming in and has to kind of adapt some of the qualities of the actors that have played that you know the, the host before i think this could be so awesome 
Yeah, you know, uh, was it kind of a lost opportunity that uh, we never got to see uh, Esri go through that same experience that Jadzia did with the previous host? It would have been like kind of a perfect excuse to bring back Jadzia without, uh, you know, kind of the uh, the awkwardness of Terry Farrell being there after the, those contract negotiations went awry. Yeah, like had Terry Farrell left on better terms where, hey, I just want to move on and go do, you know, Becker or whatever, fine, you know, and we get Ezri nonetheless, like, it would have been cool if it, things had worked out okay, and we could have had that connection between the two actresses, Mary, maybe Terry Farrell pops in for one episode in season seven, it could have been really, really interesting, and I think now, I don't know if this was the case, if you have any insight here, whether um, Nicole DeBoer was trying to, like, kind of um, evoke any of the mannerisms of Terry Farrell. I, okay, so from... What I recall, and I could be mistaken, so so listeners, don't judge me too harshly. It might just be confabulation in my own brain from, you know, uh, reading news from like 20 plus years ago. I think Nicole DeBoer was actually asked um, not to do that sort of research. Like they wanted her hmm. to have her own unique take on the character. And it's interesting when we look at, say, Grey on Star Trek Discovery, like, um, are, are, are you, like, I, I don't see that direct continuity between, uh, Grey and, uh, their current house. Why, why am I blanking on, um, Blue's, uh, Adira? Name? Adira, yeah. Like, do, do you find that continuity between those, um, performers, um, in, like, trying to emulate, say, mannerisms or anything, like, but, you know, from Adira to Grey? No, not that I've picked up on. Maybe it's an actorly thing where it's so subtle that it just flies over the head of the viewer, but like the actors are like, oh yeah, very clever. Yeah. I'm like, you know what? They are different personalities, uh, but they have those kind of enmeshed personalities as well. So maybe I, I, I think what, what you're saying though is like this would be kind of an actor's dream as well. Like just to play with it, do your own thing, but uh, take influences as you go on. The problem is, Cam... Let's be honest, season one is not going to be as fun as every subsequent season because uh, it's going to be the first host. Or, or does it have to be? It doesn't have to be. You could have past hosts. There's no, uh, it has to be the very beginning of the symbiont's lifespan. I don't think that's a, a requirement. Wouldn't it be fun if they just kind of jumped back and forth between uh, timelines as you went from season to season, host to host? Like, yeah, because there could be allusions to like, oh, I remember how I died in my last lifetime, you know, that sort of stuff. And, you know, we're all kind of building up to that every season finale or, or, you know, that could be a lot of fun. Yeah, it really could. And I think of, you know, I'm not a Doctor Who watcher, but I have, you know, we have friends that do watch Doctor Who. And Who? whenever they cast, <laughs> whenever they cast, I believe uh, Scott, you know, who's appeared on the show a few times, he was a Doctor Who follower, at least for a while. Um, but, um you know, you look at who they've cast as the Doctor. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I meant to say whom. <laughs> um, you look at some of the actors they've cast, like very different types. And that would be the appeal of Star Trek Trill would be you could go like just all over the place. You could cast any type of actor and it is completely irrelevant. It does not matter. You don't have to worry about matching physical types or mannerisms, anything. It's just the sky's the limit, and it would be so interesting, I think. Every, you know, time you tackled a different version of the trill, it would be an entirely different angle on the show. Yeah, all right. Well, uh, let's put a pin there in that one for now. I really like the idea, and then maybe we can come back to it uh, as we're kind of deciding uh, our, our favorite pitches here. Let me pitch this to you, Cam. Uh, I like to call it, um, it might be a little on the nose, but uh, Star Trek Dominion. And uh, it takes place 
in the changeling homeworld, and it's just the changelings in their amorphous form 24-7. It's kind of like the Yuletide log, and that's all we watch. <laughs> you in for that? You, you have me. I'm on the hook. Okay. <laughs> I'm Actually, reaching no, for the checkbook. <laughs> in all seriousness, though, like, I, the, the way I kind of thought about it in my head, though, is like... What look? We we see the Dominion like lose the war to the Alpha Quadrant. They're not used to losing. Like I think word gets out within the Dominion, like they are beatable, you know. And what happens if you know there are some sort of breakaway rebellions within the Dominion? Well, this entire time the, the Jem'Hadar's always been known to kind of quash any of those uh, rebellions. But what if there is some sort of genetic flaw in, in some soldiers? Uh, they don't need Ketracel whites. Uh, they can make their own decisions. Uh, we've seen some uh, Jem'Hadar who get uh, rather feisty if uh, they are going through white withdrawal. I, I think it'd be interesting to see what they're doing if they have something to fight for beyond just what their programming tells them. I, I think there could be so much fun with the, uh, the Vorta in this situation. We could get uh, a, a Salome Jens-esque sort of character. Uh, maybe um, it could not be played by one Rene Abergeonal, but maybe Odo is around, but in very different form at this point, trying to play peace broker in some of these situations. Like, I, I, it'd be fascinating if, what if it's kind of from the perspective of the Vorta trying to play diplomat as they go from, you know, breakaway rebellion to breakaway rebellion? It, it, it's almost a different thing in which. Star Trek is about unity, but what if uh, to reach the ideals that we like in, you know, kind of uh, the Federation, it's about breaking away from this totalitarianism. And I, I think there could be kind of some intriguing adventures ahead for these folks. Well, and I think of season three Discovery, where we had the Federation like broken up, right? And it was such a disappointment because the show kind of didn't really know what to do with that. It's like, well, you obviously have to unite it, so... We basically did that by the end of the season. That's not particularly satisfying dramatically. Whereas here you have a case of, you know, the anti-Federation. And the show doesn't have to like bend over backwards to assemble it all together by the end of the run. It's actually about it falling apart. So we don't have to, we don't have a one direction we have to go in. We can focus on different aspects of that society. As you said, you know, whether Odo's there, whether we're following the Vorda, the Jem Hadar. There's all these different elements, and you could actually hop between your story beats. You could tackle the various alien species. You could, um, you know, bring the uh, bring the Breen back. That's hard to say, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of elements, and again, you're not stuck with this one end game that we have to reach. Anything could happen on this show. Yeah, and one of the things I, I think as we go through our list of aliens, we'll point out maybe with the Romulans or the Klingons is we never got to see the member, the, the species from the member planets of those empires. But that was kind of a different case within the Dominion. Uh, we saw kind of the, the hunters and the Tosk. Uh, there are episodes in which, uh, you know, the crew landed on planets uh, going through some sort of like pandemics of their own that uh, Julian had to save them from. Like we did actually see like a fair number of uh, species from member planets of the Dominion. I think there, there's a rich enough history within this anti-federation, as uh, you call it, I, that I, I think just like, keep pulling from uh, the that, that mythology there. And I think there's just so much uh, to gather from this. Yeah, I agree because DS9 really put in the hard work over its run to establish the Dominion. 
And just because, you know, season, uh, just because Deep Space Nine went off the air, it feels like a waste to not go back to at least elements of that in the future. And if you're going to explore it, this could be a really way to, a really cool way to do it. Because otherwise, I just, I have a hard time imagining, like, I don't know, Picard season three jumping into, like, the Breen or something. You know what I mean? Like, or the Vorta. I just can't picture a whole Vorta storyline in Picard season three. So, I mean, I'm totally down for this. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, why don't I throw it back to you, sir? Uh, I've got a couple other ideas uh, that that might be fun, but I, I, it'll be interesting when we kind of like cross over to the same aliens and, and we can kind of go back and forth with uh, our own ideas for uh, respective aliens. Um, I don't have anything for space hippies. So if that's on your list, uh, you go for it. <laughs> okay. Well, um, you know, sometimes you'll see a franchise is flagging and another studio will jump in with something similar that really takes off that kind of betters what that other franchise could have been. Now, I look at the Predator franchise. The original Predator from 1987 is a classic, and everything that came after that, you could tell that Fox just had no idea what to do with the Predator franchise. So here's my pitch. Herogen, the series. Maybe like a limited series, maybe a one-season show, but to follow... A group of Herogen maybe on a hunting mission, um, maybe on some sort of, um, you know, kind of like that episode Prey on Voyager, which I think is really good. And that was the episode that actually convinced me this sort of thing could work, where you had Tony Todd playing a Herogen involved in a Species 8472 hunt. I think you could do something really interesting in here that also touches on, like, why we should care about the Herogen as a species beyond just the hunter aspect. Like, let's flesh this out and do something compelling in a way the Predator franchise tripped over its own feet and fell straight on top of a blaster rifle over. Well, you know what? Like, there is nuance that was established within the Herogen, though, because there are some people Mm -hmm. labeled alphas. There are others that were betas. You know, not everyone can be kind of prime meat sort of uh, hunting uh, material there. Um, I also wonder if maybe much of the series uh, would, would be centered around maybe there's a group of Herosian that they're the ones being hunted to a certain degree. Like that would be fun where, where there would be opportunities for black uh, back and forth. I even think about kind of uh, how a group of Herosian, um would have conflict about how to go about, you know, uh, whatever mission that they're on. Like they're, they're more of a nomadic species, uh, more of kind of the, uh, the lone wolf, um, uh, almost to a literal degree sort of species as well. Um, I think this could be fun. And I, Cam, I wonder though, um, Tony Todd pretty much uh, said that, uh, or, or almost guaranteed that uh, he was going to be uh, the Gabriel Lorca role. Um, like way back in the day. It was a very odd interview that he was doing. Um, maybe this is the opportunity for him to return to the franchise. He'd just have to, you know, put on like two, three hours worth of makeup to do so. Hey, I'd be down for that. And one thing I think Star Trek's been really good at is whether it's Picard, Discovery, Lower Decks, probably Prodigy, they're taking different angles on what the franchise can be. It doesn't feel as monolithic as, say, like the Star Wars stuff has been. Um, more so on the big screen. I think Mandalorian, you know, took its own little um, route and actually wound up being quite satisfying. But um, I think with this show, you could make it more of a, you know, men on a mission sort of idea. You know, ha- get a group of Herogen out doing something cool. You could make it more action-based than you would want to make the typical Star Trek. Like, that's something we hear complaints about all the time. Hey, why is Discovery just an action show half the time? Why is Picard doing all this action? It doesn't fit this show. 
why not do an action-based Herogen show that then you can, you know, let Discovery or Picard be more of what we expect from a classic Star Trek storytelling kind of show and, like, bring that sort of stuff over to the Herogen show and we can still touch on the themes of Star Trek about, you know, existence and the morality of the Herogen and their society, all that sort of stuff, but just make that more the pumped-up action Star Trek. You know, I, I think your heart is in the right place, Cam, but uh, clearly the Herogen show should just be all talking all the time. <laughs> that would be amazing if that was the philosophical modern Star <laughs> Trek show. They're like, okay, this is what Picard should have been. We are just going to have all talking all the time, all about diplomacy. I, th- I think it'd, uh, go- it'd be a, kind of a fun opportunity to bring back some familiar faces from the Delta Quadrant as well. Like, like uh, my idea is, what, what if the Herogen are being hunted? What if they're being hunted by a, a species that they have no interest being around um, because it's the Vidians? You know, what if the Vidians are trying to harvest the Herogen uh, for organs? I, I know they're exceptionally far apart within the Delta Quadrant, but maybe the Herogens are susceptible to the phage in a way that other species are not. Like, that could be kind of a fun back and forth that kind of explains why the Herogen have to be on the run in that situation. Either that or Star Trek Malon. (laughs) Isn't that just basically the Smoggies? That's the animated Star Trek show they'll be making next for children. <laughs> I, I want, I, I want, I want Star Trek Malon to be like uh, the, the the next like Lower Decks sort of uh, deal. Like that, that'll be the Lower Decks spinoff right there. The most like <laughs> unbearable children's show ever. That would be incredible. Um, but yeah, like I feel like similar to the Dominion, which you brought up. It feels like a waste to throw aside the Delta Quadrant. And obviously we're going to be doing more Delta Quadrant stuff on Prodigy. But I think we could do it here in a more, you know, I don't like to say adult, but more of a, you know, mature viewer kind of way that, you know, maybe Prodigy is naming at. Cam, can I ask you this? Uh, will we be doing more Delta Quadrant stuff with Prodigy? I don't really know. I, I kind of thought that that was the case. Because isn't Prodigy set in the Delta Quadrant? That's what I thought maybe a few months ago but based on like kind of the information that we're getting now i don't think it's the case anymore or maybe it was never the case maybe that was just our interpretation because of uh you know uh, janeway's role in this um i'll just point out like there are a lot of um uh you know new species in the main cast but there's also the medusins mm-hmm. and uh, a tellerite and all that and do they somehow get thrown into the delta quadrant i like if so, I'm down for it. I think it'd be fun. Um, but I just, my own perceptions of what this series was going to be about, they, they've kind of been a little shaken just the last few weeks since we've gotten more information about the show. Very true. And the pitch was like a group of like young people, young aliens, I guess, um, find an abandoned Starfleet vessel. So I, I don't know, like how did a Tellarite and a Medusa and what have you just wind up lost in the alpha or in the delta quadrant finding an old starfleet vessel yeah maybe i mean it makes a lot more sense just given the aliens that it is in the alpha quadrant but i guess we won't know till it comes out or at least till they give us better information about the actual plot of this show yeah i'm looking forward to the trailer for this uh it'll give us kind of a sense of the tone as well which is kind of tough to uh figure out unless like even the the tone for Lower decks uh, settled down after about four or five episodes there. So, um, 
you know, we keep saying this. I don't think we're going to review the, you know, uh, Star Trek Prodigy week to week. But if, if we do it in clusters, I, I'm very curious how like a children's show will translate for Star Trek. And it looks as if they're pouring a lot of dollars into the animation as well. So I'm very interested in at least the first trailer. Yeah, me too. I will say I was a little bummed though because there was a lot of um, guessing that the character that turned out to be a Tellarite was a Telaxian. Yeah, and I was kind of bummed. I just if you have this alien species like the Telaxians around, I'd love to see them used more because we are getting more Tellarites already now. And Neelix, you know, can't be the only Telaxian, and, and then the other ones on the colony, of course. But like, I want to see more Telaxians in the future of Star Trek. Well. Uh... At least we have, like, our first Tellarite in the main cast. Um, so that's a good thing. You know, that's interesting. I, I like it when they're really kind of mining the mythology of Star Trek in, in fun ways. So, yeah, even, like, the Medusans, for example, too. Yeah. Uh, I like how you said mining. Um, the classic Star Trek trope. <laughs> they're obsessed with mining colonies. I they're, they're, Cam, is there any other colony but a mining colony in Star Trek? Not so far. Not so far. <laughs> Unless the crystalline entity is after you. <laughs> okay. That's the other spinoff. Hey, you've just spoiled my final <laughs> oh, one. The I'm one that so was gonna sorry. I was gonna go out strong with the crystalline entity uh <laughs> spinoff. We just watch it go from planet to planet every week destroying colonies. And it's all set to Philip Glass music. <laughs> <laughs> or or tubular bells. <laughs> Sold. Alrighty. Okay. Um, Cam, uh, my next one here, uh, I like to call it Star Trek Ferengi. Now, you and I, we, we've talked about uh, kind of uh, what if there's a Game of Thrones, you know, ROM spinoff, you know, where it's him trying to navigate uh, the political upheaval of which this kind of almost kind of Ferengi feminist revolution has brought upon uh, the planets as everybody tries to adapt. I, I still think there's something there. But I wonder if there's almost kind of a single camera comedy here. Like this is Star Trek's first Malcolm in the Middle or The Office sort of deal. Like uh, maybe it's a, a Ferengi mockumentary. You know, it's um, it could be like I, I, I like the idea of the Ferengi most when they're commenting on the state of humanity rather going for broad comedy. But I think there could be a lot of fun moments within this. And maybe there's a mix of feminists, uh, male progressives and people stuck in their old ways and they don't want Ferenginar to change. I think that just like lends itself to natural conflict. Um, maybe uh, we get that human perspective if, you know, there, there's somebody based at the uh, Federation embassy that is trying to um, counsel a lot of these more progressive folks into how to navigate the, this brand new, brave new world that uh, they find themselves on now. Well, the Ferengi were always very irreverent on Deep Space Nine. Like, those episodes felt like they were taking a very different angle on the franchise. And I think that's why they rubbed people the wrong way, at least some people. Um, I think Prophet and Lace rubbed everyone the wrong way. But, yeah, some of those Ferengi episodes, even the good ones, some, there was a certain segment of the, of the fan base that just did not like them. But I think if you're going to do a Ferengi show, I, I think you are right. Like, you want to do something a little different. And... Maybe it is a more comedic sitcom-like show, and I think that would be, you know, as we said, Star Trek, with each of the shows they're doing, feel like they're taking a different angle, and I could totally see, like, a, uh, you know, the equivalent of, like, a workplace, um, you know, sitcom here, where you could have even, like, the mockumentary cameras and things like that, characters commenting, what if we are following, um, 
sort of a shift in the political structure of Ferenginar, and we're basically checking in with all the players on all the different sides, commenting on the process that they're going through. Well, what, what if the main character is a member of, like, a liquidator from the FCA, you know, and that's the person that's going in and, and checking in on different uh, facets of Ferengi society, and they're the one, uh, th- this liquidator is really in charge of ensuring that these reforms are being implemented. That might be kind of a, a fun ju- jumping off point as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, if we can work in uh, liquidator Brunt coming back for an appearance, I mean, Jeffrey Combs, he's available. Well, what we've always seen with Brunt is that he's just such a complete toady willing to go wherever the wind is blowing that I could see him uh, saying like, okay, sure, like I'll help enact these reforms and I'll, I'll make a little bit of my own profit on the way. Now, do you see this show taking place like say shortly after DS9 or are we taking like a big time jump? Because like is Rom say leading Ferenginar or are we going past that era? That's what I kind of wonder. And I think it might be more fun if we do it almost immediately after. And maybe there could be a Rom cameo or he's kind of mentioned the background. I, I don't see Max Grodencheck necessarily being in the main cast here. But because there would be so much tumult like coming right as these reforms are being enacted and people have to adapt pretty quickly. And I, I think what we saw with Mugi though is like, um, her propensity for making profit, that's what's going to talk, though. It, it's still a profit-driven society. It's just one in which now um, half the population will be pursuing um, you know, capitalistic opportunities at this point. Um, I, I, so like post-World War II, there, there are a lot of people that just assumed that because uh, so many more women were working while men had been drafted, that that meant that th- there weren't any... Uh, jobs for men coming back, um, that it was going to kind of really hurt the economy. Uh, what we saw though is the economy grew because there were more people making money and there's more business activity going on. Like, um, more women in the economy was good for the economy here. So I I think that's going to be kind of one of the driving factors as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, how do we balance sort of the seriousness of some of the subject matter with the comedy? Is it a show (laughs) that could stumble there? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Is this the most difficult Star Trek show to write of all time? <laughs> well, look, they did find that balance in Deep Space Nine. They they, they could thread that needle. Uh, look, they, they did uh, stumble at times with, like, profit and lace, you know? Like, um, there are a couple moments. But um, maybe, let's just say, uh, hire um, uh, uh, a woman showrunner who's hilarious I think that might be the first thing that you do so that you're not just getting a lot of man show jokes, you know, the entire time. Like, uh... when I, I think we saw on Deep Space Nine, like the female Ferengi were really dynamic characters. And that's something there's much more of a demand for now is fully fleshed out female characters driving some of these stories. And like we had Noogie and we also had um, the Ferengi, the female Ferengi that was disguising herself as a male um Pell. to take part in business yeah pal thank you um who you know crossed over with quark like these were really interesting characters that you know their stories really did bring the show to life so i mean there's plenty you could do especially as you said a society in tumult like bring some of those personalities forward and i think you could have some really interesting dynamic personalities on a ferengi show i just wonder if 
the tone that you want to strike is what they did with uh, Who Mourns for Mourn, in which we, we saw a bunch of different alien species. Uh, you know, they, these are folks that were into robbing banks. Um, that could be kind of a fun, almost kind of caper-esque sort of feel. Um, but I, I have to imagine there's eventually going to be like an episode titled just simply Umox, right? It has to happen. Yeah. I would think so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I would think we'd have to get a Quark appearance on this, right? Yeah, it's interesting. So, like, on the Facebook groups, um, Armin Shimmerman's niece, or at least a woman claiming to be so, and she's been <laughs> claiming to That's be so. That's actually me. <laughs> it's actually my account. <laughs> well, it's just like, um, one Amy Shimmerman has been at it for uh, many a year, which takes a lot of dedication. I have a lot of free time, Tyler. Okay. A lot of free time. <laughs> well, Cam's burner accounts has been saying that there's no way my uncle would get under that mask again. Um, I'm not sure I'd buy that. I bet if the price is right, um, like Armin Shimmerman would do it. But one of the, the easiest, most practical thing to do is just bring him back for lower decks, you know, have him, you know, play a prominent role in an episode there like that. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think that'd be great. Do you think he could do the voice without wearing the, the dental prosthetics? Um, you know, what? he, he's an actor. I, uh, yeah. I'd like to believe that he can act his way and uh, imagine he had dental prosthetics in. Although, Cam, uh, we're, we're not going to try that because we got in a whole lot of trouble last time uh, yes. we, we did a dental prosthetic joke. So. Yes, we are not going to do that. But <laughs> um, yeah, because that's something I know like um, Armin Schumann's complained about those more than a couple of times. And I'm like picture him even like in the voice booth doing Lower Decks and like, Armin, here's, your, here's the teeth. Put them in. <laughs> Oh, what's next on your list here? Okay, so I'm thinking a musical variety show hosted by the four-armed keyboard player from Unification. <laughs> With uh, appearances from one Jimmy Darren because he has access to the doctor's mobile emitter, right? Exactly, exactly. Okay. No, <laughs> that is just a joke one. But what about <laughs> a, like, Thanks for clarifying hopping... that was a joke. <laughs> I think everybody was uh, damn certain that uh, you were serious. Okay. Well, imagine a galactic road trip with the Q family, a bickering family unit out to journey the cosmos together. Obviously, you know, John Delancey's coming back for Star Trek Picard. But what happens if we get Amanda Rogers, Corbin Burnson, heck, Keegan Delancey, get him in there, bring in some other new cues, and we put them all together in the equivalent, in the spacefaring equivalent of like a Volkswagen or something, and we send them out on journeys. I, I'm down for that. Uh, there could be more odes to the American Civil War as well. Um, maybe, <laughs> maybe they're often... That's season one. Okay. <laughs> Maybe they're, uh, or maybe they're just walking down that uh, empty, desolate highway for uh, season two. <laughs> or, I'm I, down. I, I think there are opportunities to bring back um, a lot of those um, more omnipotent sorts of species. Like, I, I want them to just kind of say once and for all, Trelane is not a Q. Like, I, I've just, mm -hmm. it's been going on ever since, you know, uh, social media existed, where everybody asks the question, hey, was Trelane a Q? And it's like, unless they say it explicitly, then the answer is no. Um, but there's other uh, people that you can bring on to this. Um, you know, uh, what if they meet up with a traveler? 
for yeah. example, or, or someone from the traveler species, I need them to kind of explain to me the whole Larian thing, or at least what you know. I, I suspect we'll be getting uh, some details on kind of the background between uh, uh, one Guinan and uh, Q, yep. but um, I think there's so many opportunities for them to mine because, like, there's are the flesh and bone species, but there are so many other species within the franchise that go beyond that and i i think that would be a blast even okay remember those aliens in the tng episode the chase where is revealed that they use their dna to kind of seed the rest of the galaxy what if they grew into kind of uh more omnipotent species that the q family gets to meet up or, or what if um maybe not decker uh or, or Ilya necessarily but what if we see where the hmm. human adventure eventually led to Oh, you're just uh that's my dream right there <laughs> wait that's did, did i steal show. your next idea your next pitch <laughs> yeah the decker Ilya return yeah yeah um that would be incredible but uh, like i think there's so much you could do with a q series like i don't think they're one-dimensional characters who would you know uh, basically wear out their welcome i think you could do so much with them and i mean there's the endless it's basically the imagination is the limitation on where the show could go. You can go back in time. You could have the family just basically going and hanging out on Earth and trolling people for a while. At any time period, you can do anything. We can go visit other aliens, as you said. You could go far off into the future, way back to the beginning, hang out with the dinosaurs. I think you could just have so much fun and variety. Every week you check in to see where the wacky Q family is going to go. And it would be filmed in the same format as uh, Terrence Malick's Tree of Life. And it would have the voiceover from Jessica Chastain. <laughs> That's the entire 13 episode first season. And there's a scene where Amanda Rogers is walking through tall grass, holding her hand out, feeling the grass brush against her fingers. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You mean in an homage to Ter- Terrence Malick, somebody would be doing that? <laughs> I cannot imagine. I feel like at this point, if you're going to do any sort of uh, parody of Terrence Malick, um, just do that once and everyone will get it. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, Cam, next up uh, for me, uh, pretty obvious one, but I-, I think we should talk about it. You know, Star Trek Klingon. I don't know if I could watch, you know, a, a se- seven seasons of like Klingons grunting at each other, um, kind of uh, as the jolly Vikings. But Michael Dorn's pitch for Cap for Star Trek Captain Worf. It's actually not a bad pitch. I, I still think it's about the execution. Uh, for those that don't recall, uh, it came out recently that Michael Dorn, uh, and I think this is kind of a sign that he's kind of given up on uh, trying to pitch this series. But um, the idea was is that you know the Klingon Empire finally realizes that it's stagnating and that it needs to open itself up to other uh, species. And I, I think that just kind of provides an opportunity, much like you know Star Trek Ferengi, uh, Star Trek Klingon could follow kind of reforms, much needed reforms going on. Um, I, I, I wouldn't mind it if we get like uh, you know Michael Dorn back a, a, as Worf, if not as the main character. I don't know if Worf necessarily makes sense as a main character but if he's popping up recurring or or maybe he is part of an ensemble that could be interesting but look like like i said before we haven't seen one single species from a member planet of the klingon empire i think they made mention of one once but that's all i can recall that's absolutely bizarre if this empire is supposed to be so power like one of the great powers of the universe but we only see the warrior cast from one single planet that that's just something that just seems so ripe for more entertainment purposes yeah like where's the klingon version of the remans like i think that could be really interesting to delve into 
Um, now, okay, if the uh, the Remans were modeled on Nosferatu, which famous horror uh, creature are the uh, Klingon related species uh, based on? The mummy, duh. <laughs> they hold their arms out and they're wrapped in bandages. <laughs> yeah. But, okay. No, no, no. Down. Cam, I was talking about uh, mommy dearest. Oh, okay, okay. Joan Crawford, sure, yeah. sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, this would this show could be really cool, and I think one thing it could do that would satisfy me greatly would be place Worf in the diplomatic corps the way he was at the end of yes. DS9 going back yes. to deal with the Klingons. Like, I do not that, – that was the whole thing with the Captain Worf thing where I just was like, no, please don't do this. Like, I was very happy with where that character was at the end of DS9. So let's do that. I'm on board. Um I would like to delve into all the other elements of Klingon society that the show really didn't have much of an interest in beyond the warrior class. Like, the warriors are interesting. We got lots of good stories there, and I'm sure you could, you know, contribute there. But what about everything else? What about the artists? What about the merchants? Like, take us really on a guided tour throughout, you know, the various Klingon territories. I think that could be so fascinating. And, like, that was one thing. I actually didn't have the Klingons on my list because... I was like, is it too just, is it too one tone? Just the way that like Star Trek's tackled it in the past. And I was thinking of season one Discovery where it's like, boy, these uh, Klingon scenes are kind of wearing out their welcome. Uh, But I think here, one thing I would do is um, we just set up, they're speaking Klingon, but they're actually speaking English through the show. I don't think you have them speaking in subtitled Klingon throughout the series. That would be unbearable. Could you imagine Michael <laughs> Dorn comes back and he's looking at all his scripts and they're in Klingon. He's like, what the hell? I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, um, I get, we've, I've seen this in a couple of movies where at the start of the movie, say it's based in another country and they're speaking in the language of that country. And then the soundtrack kind of does a transition into English, which is essentially establishing that to our ears, it's English, but they are speaking their native tongue. Do something like that. Like, I'm happy to go on board with that. And I think there's more variety of storytelling to a Klingon show than there would be maybe with a Vulcan show, which I think really could be one tone. Um, I'm sorry, but Inglorious Bastards has pretty much ruined every other movie or TV show for me when it comes to incorporating the language, uh, the native languages in, especially when it comes to storytelling aspects. I I could not figure out what the language rules were when I watched uh, Black Widow just over the past weekend because at sometimes they'd speak in full sentences in Russian other times they would just use a single Russian word other times they were speaking in American accents other times they were speaking in Russian accents I was just like I don't understand the rules at all with this the Russian accents in Black Widow are a comedy unto themselves um, it felt very comic booky I couldn't focus on it whatsoever <laughs> the fact that like a lot of the reviews were like David Harbour's so much fun and he's doing the worst Russian accent ever <laughs> is it like the equivalent of um when uh Bruce Willis starred in the Jackal and he did the Canadian accent I don't remember his Canadian accent. Was it really bad? He was uh, talking like a hoser, eh? You know, he's just talking like this. Uh, Cam, uh, you've lived in uh, Canada your whole life. Have you ever met anybody who uh, talks like this? Oh, my God. I'm going to be tackling the Jackal on the Spy Hards podcast at some point in the fairly near future. So I will definitely keep my ear out for that. <laughs> yeah, eh? You know, um, and I'm sure our listeners, uh, most of whom are uh, not from Canada, uh, they probably realize that uh, you and I don't talk like this, but uh, pretty much... Every American I encounter, when they want to do a Canadian accent, this, uh, this is what they do, eh? Yeah, it kind of comes from that strange brew um, approach to Canadians, yeah. 
Yeah, Cam, when I moved down, like, I, I, I grew up in the U.S. Like, I'm Canadian, but I grew up in the U.S. And when I moved down there, I can't tell you how many Strange Brew references. I'd never even seen Strange Brew before. But the family next door is a very large. It was, like, nine kids, um, one of whom was, like, my exact same age. And then there are, like, two or three others, like, very close. I had to go over and watch Strange Brew with them, like, at a... Uh, a sleepover? I was just absolutely mystified, but this is what they base their entire concept of Canadians upon. Yeah, I have a copy of it sitting on my shelf, and I've had it there for like five years, and I've just never watched it. I'll have a night off. I'll be like, what should I watch? What have I not seen on my shelf? I'll look at Strange Brew and be like, nope, something else, something else. <laughs> You're going to go for Inglorious Bastards instead. <laughs> yeah, one night I will watch it because it's 90 minutes, and sometimes you're looking for that 90-minute movie, but not this week. Probably not next week. Probably yeah. not the week after. <laughs> okay. Uh, Cam, what, what's next up for you? What's what's your pitch here? Okay. Um, I think this one's kind of obvious, but it could be really cool. And it's an Andorian show about the Imperial Guard. And I don't know that this would have necessarily popped into my head as a great idea before Enterprise. But having followed the journey of Shran on that show... And seeing that there's some really compelling personalities, you know, just within the Andorian species, you know, with him and his first officer and just various crew members, like, there's variety there. It doesn't feel like if you did, say, a Vulcan crew, a lot of the characters are going to sound kind of samey the way that Star Trek would write them. I think with the Andorians, you know, you've got kind of the passion of that alien species. You'd get some great drama there. There's conflict. And... What are the Andorians up to? Like, what is the Imperial Guard doing on a regular basis? I think this could be a really interesting spacefaring show. Well, let me ask you, like, what period would you set this? Hmm. It's an excellent question. I mean, I would be more than happy with it being set during the Enterprise era. I don't know that they would do that, though. Um, is that our way in to Star Trek kind of Romulan War story? Like, I, I wonder, because, look, we can kind of guess what things might be from the uh, human, from the Earth perspective. Why do the Andorians want to join up in this so-called federation with their enemies, the Vulcans, and their frenemies, the, the humans? Like, that could be kind of an interesting question that uh, they could address there. Well, here's a question for you. We have heard rumors that Season 5 Enterprise would have tackled the Romulan War. The, Rom the Romulan War is something that's referred to a lot in Star Trek. Do you think it's off the table that we go back and see the Romulan War at some point? Like, is it too irresistible to not at some point do it? I think this is where Star Trek comes in on its streaming service platform and, and does maybe a motion picture on it. I don't see them doing like a short trek. I don't see them doing a limited series, but I wonder if there's kind of a, a small contained sort of um, Das Boot uh, kind of ship bound feature film over two hours that could incorporate the Earth Romulan War. And, and maybe the Andorians come to the rescue at the end because it is called the Earth Romulan War. But I have to believe that the Vulcans and the Andorians, uh, the Tellarites and the Rigelians all kind of play varying roles within this. I would have to imagine so. And I got to say, I would love it if they did sum up the entire Romulan War in a short trek. <laughs> and people were like, wow, that really wasn't as impressive as I thought it would be. <laughs> it's like eight minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just them signing the peace accords. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would be as underwhelming as anything in the history of Star Trek, I think. Well, but, I mean, if you did this show, if you wanted to go back to that era, you could bring back Shran. Just you 
looking at how much makeup goes into you know the Shran look, uh, you could easily disguise um, Jeffrey Combs's age. Like it, it wouldn't really matter. Yeah, you could also just do like a VFX pass on him, like uh, we saw with Brent Spiner or something uh-uh, like that. Uh uh-uh. uh. Don't do that again. <laughs> Don't do that again. <laughs> um i i I wonder though like they they kind of touched on it i I don't think they execute it very well on star trek picard with regards to what is clearly a long history of romulan spies uh disguising themselves as vulcans i think if we get kind of an earth romulan war i I think that's kind of another fun opportunity for them to really seize on that like what if it is kind of that das boot sort of movie there is a Vulcan based on the ship, but what if it really isn't a Vulcan? Like, or maybe it is kind of, um, you know, one of those kind of spy stories, or, or maybe it's just leading to paranoia. Maybe people suspect the Vulcans' allegiances. Actually, no, because um, nobody had a clue that the Vulcans and Romulans were uh, cousin sort of species at that point. But I think there's kind of opportunities for them to have a lot of fun with that. Well, you remember, and we laughed about this a lot, about Rick Berman pitching Sharan as being their version of James Bond. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you, you know, coined Sharan Connery. Um, <laughs> but One of my best jokes. <laughs> and, and I also coined uh, Sharan Solo a couple weeks ago, too. So That's true. That's true. Um, but, like, one thing we did see on the original series in Journey to Babel was a Orion disguising themselves as an Andorian. And so, like, what happens if we did more with that? Like, maybe the Orions start to try to infiltrate the Andorians, and that would be a way of exploring more of Orion culture through an Andorian show as well. I I think you could do some really cool original series alien stuff. But their antennas need to stick on a lot better than that uh, first one we saw in Journey (laughs) to Babel, where it just snaps off. That's so amazing. That's very much model (laughs) 1.0. Okay, Kim, I've got one last one that I want to pitch. Maybe if we have some other ideas, we can do a bit of a lightning round here. But um, this is one that I've been begging for for a long time. We've kind of touched on it. We don't need to spend too, too much time here. But uh, Star Trek Cardassia. Uh, This takes place immediately after the Dominion War. It's on occupied Cardassia Prime, in which it's kind of been divided, similar to uh, Germany, into kind of uh, the different... um, uh, successful uh, victors of this. So we have kind of like this uh, East-West Berlin sort of deal on Cardassium Prime. And I think, you know, we, we know that the uh, like the Klingons uh, are kind of allies to the Federation. That's kind of the, uh, the uh, Americans, French, British occupying forces of Germany. Um, but it's the Romulans, pre-destruction of Romulus, though, but I think there's just so many spy opportunities going on between uh, the Romulans, the Federation, who can really kind of uh, determine what kind of path forward the Cardassians are going to have. Will they become kind of a member state of, say, the Federation? Do the Romulans want to occupy them? Can the Cardassian Union rebuild itself to some degree? Um, I don't think the Cardassians would be happy at all with uh these occupying forces i i think that lends itself very easily to very clear motivations among the characters and a lot of just natural conflicts um i think there's many a grand spy story to be told here on star trek cardassia well i'm glad you underlined the spy story aspect because i think if you just spent an ongoing series with the cardassians it would become very unbearable but you if you start working in you know intrigue and espionage and all that sort of thing outside species this could be a really interesting show that could underline 
all of the changing elements of Cardassian society and the politics and all that sort of stuff without just focusing on Cardassians the whole time, which could get a little tough for new viewers of the franchise. Another thing too, though, like both this premise as well as the Andorian one, we're underlining this could be a really good spy story. And maybe this also highlights our disinterest in what Star Trek wants to do with spies in Section 31, that something like this, a little outside the box, feels much more appealing. Well, okay, what they want to do with Section 31 is just kind of wet work operations in which they go and murder people. And I'm just kind of like that. To me, that's like kind of the the least interesting thing about spy movies. Uh, to me, it's just like uh, somebody needs an information. Uh, somebody needs kind of... Um, uh, a mole you know uh th there's tension brought on by whether or not the mole is going to be discovered w with section 31 it's just going around like killing people i'm just like oh that's not very interesting when it comes to spies yeah well and it just seems as well that section 31 would just be action show it would be very it feels like it would be generic action show whereas i think whether it's the cardassian approach or the andorian we'd like to see something a little more well thought out a little a little more interesting in terms of the grander scope of Star Trek and something that would develop, in either case, the alien species that we're really interested in learning about. And Cardassians are one that, kind of like where I was saying the Klingons were usually focused on in terms of the warrior class, the Cardassians, we saw a lot of the worst of Cardassia, a lot of it with, you know, Gal Dukat, Gal Madrid, um, the Tribunal episode with poor O'Brien. I would like to see the positive aspects of Cardassia, because there has to be some. There's got to be some, like, decent Cardassian stories. There's got to be Cardassian heroes we could see. I would love to see that sort of thing. Yeah, they alluded to the fact that before as a militaristic society, is rich in art, music, um, history. Like, that's something, it's almost kind of like a Cardassian renaissance uh, after a, such a destructive war wiped out so much of their society and what they prized within that society. And honestly, we need... <laughs> one of the uh, people stationed on uh, Cardassia Prime has to be like a Bajoran, right? Like, that that's just got to, like, uh, pour, pour a little salt in the wound and but make it fun. Conflict equals drama. I think so. Yeah. Um, Kent, maybe, maybe we want to do a quick uh, lightning round or uh, something like that. Does that work for you, sir? Sure. Um, I've just got a couple. I'll start with one. Um... I kind of folded it into my Andorian pitch, but I think you could do an interesting story about the Orion and have, you know, you could follow a protagonist in Orion society who's navigating between the dangers of the slavery system they have there and wanting to aspire to something greater. I think that could be really interesting. Uh, I, I I think Tendi had a funny joke where, like, uh, she's like, uh, there's so many of us that haven't been pirates for, like, five years. <laughs> um uh, yeah, one for me, uh, Star Trek Borg. What if there's kind of a, a shattering of the collective uh, as we kind of saw at the end of Voyager? So what does it mean for, say, those untethered drones? Maybe different factions drift to mini collectives. They just need that. They don't want to be individuals. But maybe there's a one-off story. Maybe it's a, just a short trek. But I've always been fascinated by the idea of, like, what if a species worships the Borg? And maybe assimilated is kind of like going to heaven or, or maybe it's almost kind of like Ragnarok or something like that. I, I think that could be kind of a fun idea to play with. Mm -hmm. That could be very cool. Um, I also have Baylock. We met him early on in TOS played by Clint Howard. What does this little guy get up to? 
what's he journeying around the cosmos doing? I'd like to, you know, sit in on his adventures while he puts up new and scarier looking puppets week to week to try to uh, intimidate the people he encounters. Is it still played by Clint Howard? <laughs> yes, Good. 100%. Yes. I'm in. I'm in for that short trek. <laughs> um, Cam, uh, Star Trek Romulus uh, or Star Trek Romulan because Romulus is gone. Uh, we kind of saw it with Star Trek Picards, but we didn't really like the Romulans. Like Elnor and Narek were really lame. Rizzo was fun, and, and oh, kind of gave a fun performance, but her motivations were so cloudy throughout, and once her motivations were revealed, I think we both kind of looked at each other and was like, well, that's dumb. Um, but what if it's about, like, Lars and Zivon, like, Picard's little helpers making wine a lot of fun? Maybe Picard's got a Riemann helper, too, on that winery. That could be great to see him interacting there. Um, yeah, I, I'm totally down for uh, Star Trek Romulans if uh, they can make it work, which I don't know if they really showed that in Star Trek Picard. Yeah, I'm not going to knock that species off the table because of Star Trek Picard, but Star Trek Picard did nothing to encourage me that a Romulan series would be watchable. Yeah. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Um, and lastly... What about a sports betting show hosted by the Gamesters of Triskelion? Oh, yeah. Uh, dude, you just took mine. So, yeah. Mm. <laughs> okay. So, are we going to choose which one we think would make for the best show? Do we? Okay. I, For me, I think the one that might have kind of most potential for both comedy perspective as well as drama, I, I think, you know, Star Trek Ferengi could really work. But I, there's something about like kind of the uh, the Andorians that I like. And we were kind of pitching like so many ideas about how it can incorporate itself within kind of Star Trek mythology, especially early on as you see the birth of the Federation. But um, are there any ones that uh, you're kind of rooting for, champion at this point? Well, I really like the Klingon one because I dismissed the Klingons initially because I just thought I can't watch an hour of you know actors talking you know, kind of gruffly to one another. But I just think there's so much to discover there that the franchise has not exploited. And I think I think it's a type of show that you have a lot of doubters that this is a good idea that could turn into something, you know, whether it is something grand like a Game of Thrones or something or, or something more intimate. Either way, I think you could walk away from that show having a new appreciation for the Klingons. Um, I would just, I think, also... I. I the Andorian one, I think, could be fun, but I do think you could do something really artistically interesting with Trill. So I kind of fall down on the Trill one. I was really excited about that one when I started picturing in my mind what it could be. All right, so maybe uh, you're rooting for a Star Trek Trill. I'm rooting for a Star Trek Ferengi. Um, th those are probably uh, our top ones, and I think they're both very viable for uh, kind of pitching. I'm not saying these are ever going to be made, but I think if you were ever going to kind of come up with ideas. I, I think these ones have a lot of potential to work. Uh, whereas a, a lot of, when I hear fans, like kind of pitch ideas on like Facebook, a lot of stuff is like, um, what if we gave a uh, Chekhov a series? It's like, and then what? You know, it, it's, it's like, that's just a character that that's not like an episode pitch or sorry, like a series pitch, you know? So like, yeah. I think what we're pitching though, like, they're, they're actually sustainable. And the anthology series, I think that's something that Star Trek, its time has come. Like we, that was something that would really work within the Star Trek franchise because it can just reset itself every year. Yeah, and I would never pitch um, these shows. Say like that we were doing this back in like twenty, 
2014 when the show first started a lot of these to me would not be the best of ideas but in a world where we can do short seasons or short um series or like a one season thing like Watchmen or something like I think there's so many stories here that are viable that don't depend on 26 episodes you know seven season type stories like Baylock hmm, exactly that one requires that that amount but okay well, I, I think on I, yeah I was thinking <laughs> even more than that <laughs> It's like the, um, oh man, the gun smoke of Star Trek. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod. Let us know your thoughts on these Star Trek spinoffs or ones you'd like to see. Okay, Tyler, what are we doing next time? Cam, I think we need to talk about the best and worst commanding officers. Um, I, I think, look... We've tackled why some captains are just awesome, but um, there's other people that have taken over the bridge to varying results, and there are some people that just don't seem right for leading. And I think it'll be fun for us to zero in on, on why certain folks, maybe you can think of a couple, that just don't work as a commanding officer. This is going to be really fun, I think. And it's all in good spirit. Boy, there are some examples. Yeah, there's some examples I can think of of commanding well, officers I would not want. And let me say this, like, there are great characters here that we're going to talk about, but I don't necessarily think that just because you're a great character, you're automatically a fantastic commanding officer. And I think that's something that we do need to delineate. Like, do do you think, you know, Garrick, if he was ever given command of something, he would actually be a great commanding officer? Like, probably not. Well, I think everyone can agree there's bosses out there who are good at, say, paperwork and things like that, who, who aren't good with people. So... Yeah, Star Trek is the same as the rest of the world. Well, <laughs> um, it's Star Trek, the Peter Principle. <laughs> okay, you can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam, V as in Vidian spinoff. Could be very short-lived, Smith. You can find me at Reporton, that's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N-N as in Noskin spinoff is what we really want. <laughs> okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. complete.